This is Herb Montgomery, and I want to take this opportunity to thank all of you who are supporting the work of Renewed Heart Ministries. It's people like yourself that enable us to exist and to be a positive resource in our world in the work of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation. If you're unfamiliar with Renewed Heart Ministries, we are a not-for-profit group that is passionate about centering a set of values and ethics in the experiences of those on the undersides and margins of our society informed also by the sayings and the teachings of the historical Jewish Jesus of Nazareth. If you'd like to support our work, I'll tell you how you can do so at the end of this podcast. But for now, we simply want to thank you for listening. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 202 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. Our title this week is Not Fearing the Body's Death. Our feature text is Sayings Gospel Q 12, 4 through 5, and do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, For but fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body and Gehenna. And Matthew 10 is our companion text, and Luca. 12, and we have one more from, from the Maccabees, Matthew 10, 28, uh, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, Luke 12, 4 through 5, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And Matthew, or 4th Maccabees, sorry, 13, 14 through 15, let us not fear him who thinks he's killing us, for great is the struggle of the soul and the danger of internal torment lying before those who transgress the commandment of God. Now, this week's saying is rooted in this this Jewish text in the Maccabees uh, that precedes uh, the Gospels. Uh, Second Maccabees and 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 four Maccabees they tell us the story of the martyrdom of seven Jewish brothers, their mother, and their teacher. And this was during a, the time uh, where, uh, where the Maccabean family the, and the Seleucid Empire through Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the, 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 the Seleucids were threatening the fundamentalist Hebrew people with death if they refused to become Hellenized. And in 4 Maccabees 13, 14 through 15, as we just read, one of the Jewish brothers is saying, let us not fear him who thinks he's killing us, for great is the struggle of the soul and the danger of eternal torment lying before those who transgress the commandment of God. And this was the rallying cry that they used to, to strengthen the Jewish resolve to resist uh, their, their Hellenistic oppressors. And fast forward two centuries to the time of Jesus, and Galilee and Samaria and in Judea, we know that there were continual efforts to spark revolution by following a violent uh, Messiah, following violent messiahs and their their uprisings against Rome. And Rome had a brutal history of lashing back against all violent uprisings. Josephus tells us how um, Varus uh, responded to one of these attempts in Galilee, and this is from 
Antiquities uh, 17, uh, book 10. This is uh, Josephus. Upon this, Varus sent a part of his army into the country to seek out those that had been the authors of the revolt. And when they were discovered, he punished some of them that were most guilty, and some he dismissed. Now the, the number of those that were crucified on this account were 2,000. And, and as a tangent... Josephus repeatedly writes of of revolutionary prophets leading large groups of people, especially there's there's one I want to focus on that that led a large group of people into the desert around 50 CE. And these prophets told the people that once they were in the desert, God would show them signs of of coming freedom. And the Roman procurator Felix, uh, he regarded these gatherings as the first stage of revolt, especially this one. And he sent a, a cavalry and heavy infantry into the desert after them to to cut the crowds uh, into pieces, Josephus says, in the Jewish war. And uh, the, the... the, the most infamous of these prophets who, who promised signs to be observed was a, a militaristic messiah known as the Egyptian. And he's mentioned in Acts 21.38. Um, Acts 21.38 says, Then you are, not, uh, you are not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. So Josephus describes the event as follows. Arriving in the country, this man, a fraud, who posed as a seer, collected about 30,000 dupes, Uh, led them round from the desert to the Mount of Olives, and from there was ready to force an entry into Jerusalem, overwhelm the Roman garrison, and seize supreme power with his fellow raiders as bodyguard. That's uh, Josephus' The Jewish War. I'll put a reference, uh, page 147. I'll put a reference to uh, that in this week's uh, Esite. But in a parallel account of this event, Josephus includes uh, the sign that this Egyptian had claimed would be shown to the people in in the course of their their liberating Jerusalem, and it would be a sign like a Joshua's sign at the Battle of Jericho, or or at the Egyptians' command, the walls of Jerusalem would would fall down so that his followers could enter and seize the city. Uh, b- but before any such a, a sign could be attempted, uh, the Roman cavalry and infantry slew and captured hundreds. Uh, and put to flight all the rest, including the militaristic messiah, the Egyptian himself. And it must be remembered that these were not lunatic leaders. They were hopeful, uh, violent messiahs. Um, They were action prophets who contemporary scholars see as attempting to to lead movements of of Jewish peasants in active engagements of of specifically violent human effort that would be accompanied by divine acts of empowerment and and ultimately deliverance. And the logic went something like this. Success is dependent on the combining of human effort and divine power, and if they wanted divine deliverance, they must present the violent human effort for Yahweh to bless. Uh, God would meet their efforts if they if they would only act first. They had to take the first step. And the necessity of our, our action, uh, I think, is the truth to be found in the above logic. We must engage, but that our action has to be violent, I think, is short-sighted. And, and the rhetoric of these violent messiahs, it was steeped in the symbols of, of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan, Josephus also describes another event where Romans massacred a thousand Jewish women and children who were acting in obedience to another Jewish violent messiah prophet. 
This violent Messiah had had declared to the people in Jerusalem that God had commanded them to go up to the temple to receive the signs of deliverance. And that's uh, Josephus is the Jewish war, page 360. And uh, elsewhere, Josephus describes a Samaritan prophet who was a contemporary Messiah uh, of, 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 uh, he was a contemporary of Jesus uh, during the time of Pontius Pilate. And the prophet's sign that he was leading the people uh, up to the sacred mountain, uh, Jerizim, uh, to, to find holy vessels that were left there by Moses. And instead, the armed crowd was attacked and, and overwhelmed by Pilate's troops at the, at the foot of the mountain. So Jesus warns about signs and false messiahs, and, 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 and he, he warns about about violent messiahs, and we put all that together with this week's saying, uh, I, I think it begins to, to give us a, a, a little bit of insight into what was going on behind this saying. So let's go back and, and, and talk about again the, the Rome's efforts or its backlash, uh, especially in the area of Galilee. The Galilee was the region, and, and, and it was memories of these types of responses by Rome that have been very present uh, there in the region that Jesus grew up in. Jesus was a Galilean. And Jesus rephrases that Maccabean saying that we looked at originally, and he warns the people not to follow violent messiahs because complete annihilation from Rome would result. And let, let's see how. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but fear the one who's able to destroy both soul and body and Gehenna. And in order to see what Jesus is saying here, we have to step away from uh, the Christian myth of, uh, of, of hell and step back into a Jewish understanding of the term Gehenna. Gehenna is a term that the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah uses regarding uh, the, the deeds of a Judean king Ahaz. And, and, and this is from Second Chronicles 28 first. Let's get the background. And he, talking about Ahaz, made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and made his sons pass through the fire, according to the abominable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Since his legitimate sons, oh, this isn't part of the text, but I'll, I'll share it with you. Uh, this is a, a bracket. But since his legitimate son uh, by his daughter of the high priest Hezekiah succeeded him as king, this is assumed to mean his children by unrecorded pagan wives and concubines. So basically, if you take the notes with the passage, um, uh, the textual notes along with the passage, he, he finally, his, uh, uh, his Hebrew wife finally conceived. And so all the children that he uh, had conceived or had birthed through um, pagan wives uh, basically, he 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 made them pass through this fire as an act of worship to the gods. It was a religious way of getting rid of competitors to his throne. Um, we find this in Second Chronicles thirty three verse six about uh, Ahaz's grandson Manasseh. It says he. Uh, he, he made his son pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom and practiced soothsaying and, and augury and sorcery and dealt with mediums and wizards and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. And then we get all the way down to Jeremiah. I read those two passages in Chronicles so we could read this. It says, They go on building the high places of Topheth, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom. This is where these sacrifices had previously been made. 
to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it even come into my mind. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when it will be no more called Topheth or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth until there is no more room. In Jeremiah 19, 11 through 15, it says, And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, at the entry of the Potsher Gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the words of the Lord, O King of Judah and, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I'm going to bring such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, because the people have forsaken me, have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah may have known. Uh, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and gone on building the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as bird offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it enter my mind. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth or uh, the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. So Jeremiah He repurposes this literal landmark, this valley of the son of Hinnom, or Gehenna, as a symbol of Hebrew annihilation at the hands of foreign powers. We know that that the fulfillment to Jeremiah's uh, Gehenna warnings were that that Babylon came in and uh, leveled uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And, and, and took many uh, the inhabitants uh, captive. And in the, in the time of Jesus, uh, well, first, in Jeremiah's day, the foreign power, again, would have been Babylon. But in the time of Jesus, it was Rome. And Jesus takes the same language that Jeremiah used, and he makes it a metaphor for Roman destruction of Judea if the Jews followed a violent Messiah. In the original Maccabean phrase, remember, a faithful Jewish worshiper, worshiper risked losing his life for remaining faithful, uh, but was warned of a worse post-mortem fate, eternal punishment, if he didn't remain faithful, uh, if, he, if he Hellenized. But Jesus repurposes this warning, but he removes the post-mortem part, the post-mortem warning. And instead, he adds a very this world, this life, uh, concrete warning of Gehenna, which, uh, according to Jeremiah, was was destruction by a foreign power. And remember that Jesus has been teaching nonviolent forms of resistance. And in this week's saying, he's saying, do not allow fear of the violent Romans uh, to push you to abandon nonviolent forms as futile or naive or ineffective. And he warns his followers not to fear those that can destroy the body, but fear instead the one who will end up destroying both body and soul. Body and soul is a, a phrase that means complete annihilation in the worldview of the Hellenized Galileans and his Jewish listeners. And, 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 and the physical violence, like the violence of the Romans, was a very real threat, a very real fear for those that worried about nonviolent forms of resistance. So how could a violent messiah, uh, if they allowed that fear of using nonviolent means, the fear of Rome, to cause them to choose violent ones instead, how would a violent messiah destroy 
both body and soul? Well, it's the same way they had in the past. If Galilean impoverished followers took over Jerusalem's temple as they they did and ultimately did in the Jewish-Roman War, that's how history played out, if they were to lash out violently against Rome, Jesus is warning that they would not only lose their lives, have their body destroyed, but also Jerusalem. The temple itself and the surrounding areas would be totally obliterated, i.e. Gehenna. And Jesus isn't saying that nonviolence revolution won't fail. He's saying that even if it does, it won't fail to the same catastrophic degree that violent revolution will. Yeah, you might lose your life using nonviolence, but if you follow a violent messiah, the pushback of Rome is going to be so intense. Uh, it'll be a, it'll be like Jeremiah's Gehenna with Babylon. It'll be a Gehenna uh, today. So Jesus was concerned for uh, the, the survival and liberation of his people, for sure. Um, if we think about the Maccabeans for a second, the Maccabeans didn't worry about what could happen to their bodies. If they remained faithful, they, they worried about what would happen to their souls if they didn't. And unlike the Maccabeans, Jesus told his followers to fear the complete annihilation of their entire world um, because if they followed a violent messiah again, um, their entire world uh, would be obliterated by Rome if, if they took up that, that violence resist, violent resistance in, in Jerusalem. So again, Jesus was concerned uh, for their liberation, but also for their survival. And, and keeping survival and liberation in tension, uh, tension with one another. I believe Jesus called a society to embrace nonviolent forms of resistance that allowed oppressors to be overcome through the transformation of society, which also... Uh, provided the best possible probabilities for for those that were resisting, uh, the probability of them living to enjoy that liberation once it was achieved. Nonviolence offers no guarantees, uh, but even when it fails, it, it produces fewer losses than than violent failures. There's a rather long uh, passage from Walter Wink's work, Jesus and Nonviolence, um, that I want to share this week. And I know it's long and, and reading long passages, it's a challenge to, for your attention to, to your attention span to, to last that long. But I believe it's extremely relevant to this week's saying. So if you will, just hang in here with me for just a second. I want to read it to you. This is again is Walter Wink's Jesus and Nonviolence. Once we determine that Jesus's third way is not a perfectionist avoidance of violence, but a creative struggle to restore the humanity of all parties in dispute. The legalism that has surrounded this issue becomes unnecessary. We cannot sit in judgment over the responses of others to their oppression. Gandhi continually reiterated that if a person could not act nonviolently in a situation, violence was preferable to submission. Where there is only a choice between cowardice and violence, I would advise violence, Gandhi said. But Gandhi believed that a third way can always be found if one is deeply committed to nonviolence. Jesus' way, which is the way of the cross, means voluntarily taking on the violence of the powers that be, and that will mean casualties. But they will be nowhere near near the scale of what would result from violent revolution. Britain's Indian colonies 
colony of the of 300 million people was liberated nonviolently at a cost of about 8,000 lives. The British apparently suffered not a single casualty, dead or wounded. It took 27 years. France's Algerian colony of about 10 million was liberated in seven years by violence, but it cost almost 1 million lives versus 8,000. The staggering differential in lives lost certainly cannot be ascribed to the French being more barbaric or determined to keep their colony than the British, and most of the French were fighting merely to keep a colony, not their native soil. Solidarity in Poland nonviolently stood up to the ruthless power of a communist government and lost about 300 lives over a period of 10 years. About the same time, Argentina, in a violent but fruitless effort to take the Falkland Malvinas Islands, lost approximately 1,000 lives in two weeks against the British. The armed revolt in Hungary was crushed by the Soviets at the cost of five to 6,000 Hungarian lives. 40,000 were imprisoned, tortured, and detained. In Czechoslovakia, where a spontaneous nonviolent resistance was mounted, uh, 70 died and political prisoners were released. In the United States civil rights struggle, about 50,000 demonstrators were jailed, but fewer than 100 of those engaged in campaigns were killed. By contrast, armed revolution in Cuba and Nicaragua cost 20,000 lives each. In El Salvador, 60,000 civilians died, quite apart from military casualties. Over the past 30 years, 100,000 Guatemalans have lost their lives, out of a population of only 7.8 million. We cannot ignore the implication of these statistics, for the comparative degree of carnage is a moral issue. We need to be very clear that this is in the interest of the powers to make people believe that nonviolence doesn't work. To the end that they create a double standard, if a single case can be shown where nonviolence doesn't work, nonviolence as a whole can then be discredited. No such rigorous standard is applied to violence, however, which regularly fails to achieve its goals. Close to two-thirds of all governments that assume power by means of coups uh, are ousted by the same means. Only one in 20 post-coup governments give way to a civil government. The issue, however, is not which one works better, but also which one fails better. While a nonviolent strategy also does not always work in terms of present goals, uh, though in another sense it always works, at least the casualties and destruction are far less severe. Again, that's Walter Wink's Jesus and Nonviolence, uh, chapter 4. I, I disagree with Wink's statement a little bit uh, that the way of the cross is synonymous with nonviolence. We, I think we have to be careful not to glorify the cross or to promote uh, the myth of redemptive suffering. And, and we'll discuss both of those at length when we get to the, 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 the Jesus' is saying on taking up a cross. But for now, it's worth considering that both violent resistance and nonviolent resistance come with a price tag. And I believe that Jesus was seeking to help his fellow Jewish oppressed people stand up to violent Rome in a way that allowed them to survive the encounter rather than being annihilated by it, whether it succeeded or not. And, and Week states in the same vol, vol, uh, volume, Jesus was no less committed to opposing evil than the anti-Roman uh, resistant 
uh, resistance fighters. The only difference was over the means to be used. How one should fight evil. There are three general responses to evil. Passivity, number one. Number two, violent opposition. And then number three, the third way of militant nonviolence articulated by Jesus. So it's it's this militant nonviolence that we see Jesus encouraging his followers to embrace. And what we also see in this week's saying is Jesus warning the people not to go down the path that they ultimately did choose. And, and I wonder how far we can apply this militant nonviolence in our time today. Um, the, the LGBTQ community has made great strides over uh, the last uh, two, three decades without great violence. And, and, and I do, though I respect that many LGBTQ people no longer wish to be associated with Jesus because Jesus has been used to do so much damage to them. Uh, they have nonetheless demonstrated how much society can be transformed positively by, by raising collective consciousness. Changing society from, from the inside out for them has borne positive fruit and through relationships, through marketing, lobbying, television media, and other nonviolent methods. This community has changed society hands down, not with a sword, but by influence. And I, I remember being told by a friend when we were working for the LGBT. Uh, non-discrimination here in in my local town uh, here in Appalachia. I was told that once a person was uh, prejudiced against the LGBTQ uh, uh, community, once that person who's prejudiced has five friends who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer, uh, they see a common. They, they see that the common stereotypes. Uh, that were associated with that community, um, they see those stereotypes as a destructive falsification and, and, and they reject those stereotypes and it doesn't line up with what their experience of these people has been. So, so when they've uh, um, basically released those stereotypes, people become allies and they change how they vote for, for the protection of their friends' rights. And, and, and the discussion ceases to be about issues and rather becomes about human beings that they know and are in community with and actually care about. And as someone who is always looking for modern examples of Jesus' teachings on militant nonviolence, I believe this community, its experience, offers, I think, rich lessons. And this week, let's consider uh, the warning in Jesus' saying, what might Gehenna or total destruction look like in our society. Uh, we are to oppose injustice. We're to resist oppression. Um, but let's do it together in a way that isn't suicidal, but could allow us to survive to enjoy the liberation once we've accomplished it. There are no guarantees, and, and remaining passive is not an acceptable option. Sayings Gospel Q 12, 4 through 5, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but fear the one who is able to throw both body and soul into Gehenna. Heart group application this week. Uh, this week I want you to, to, as a group, spend some time together considering the statements above from, from Wink, the long one that I read and the, and the short one. And Wink ends his first chapter uh, in, in the same book with some tough questions, and I think they're, they're appropriate for heart groups too. These are the three questions he asks at the end of chapter one. What objections do you have to nonviolence? What objections do you have to violence? 
Number two, do you think you could be nonviolent during a specific demonstration or vigil, and if not consistently, across your life? And then number three, what reasons can you find for choosing to be nonviolent? Thank you for checking in with us this week. Keep living in love, a love once again manifested through solidarity in the work of survival, liberation, resistance, restoration, and transformation. Remember, I love each of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Thank you once again for listening. Everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries is done with the purpose of making these resources as free as possible. And to do so, we need the help of people like yourself. If you'd like to support the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, you can make a one-time gift or become one of our monthly contributors by going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking on the Donate tab at the top right of the homepage. Or you can mail your contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24. Make sure you also sign up for our free resources on our website, and we have a monthly newsletter that we mail out, and there's just much, much more. Remember, everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries is for free, and every little bit helps. And anything we receive over and above our annual budget, we happily pass on to other not-for-profits that we feel are making both systemic and, and personal differences in the lives of those less privileged within our status quo. And for those already Already supporting our work. Again, thank you. Together we are making a difference, making our world a safer, more just, more compassionate home for us all. <laughs>